Our scripture reading this evening comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We will begin in verse 16 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. And we will hear down to chapter 6 and verse 2. 2 Corinthians beginning, chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. This is the word of the living God. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Amen. Let us now turn to the Lord our God in prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you now and confess together that you are God Most High, that you alone are God, and there are no other gods beside you. We rejoice in the glory of who you are, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What a wondrous thing it is to have your word, to declare to us the good news of Jesus Christ, who has come down from heaven to us and taken upon himself our same human nature, that we might be reconciled to you, that we might be brought to God. What amazing thing it is to have our sins forgiven, to have the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to us, to be at peace with God, to be translated out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the beloved Son of the Father. Father, we ask for your mercy and your grace upon us in this hour. We ask that you would be pleased to help us Help us to have and come to a better understanding of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and of his body, the church, that we might be faithful in our ministry, in the preaching of the gospel, in the oversight of the churches. Father, we need your help. 
We need your work in us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for your churches. We thank you for your people that you are gathering together into local churches, those expressions of the body of Jesus Christ here and now. Father, we thank you that there are so many here with us to hear this proclaimed tonight. And we ask, Father, that if there are any here who have not been reconciled to you through Jesus Christ, Father, that they would give up their rebellion, that they would give up their judgment of you and themselves and setting themselves up above you and over you, that they would have done with their warfare with you, that they would sue for peace, that they would rest in Christ and in him alone, turning away from their sins, that they might know joy and life everlasting. Father, we thank you for this ministry of reconciliation. And we ask, Father, that you would bless Pastor Chuck Rennie as he comes tonight to declare this truth to us. Father, give him great wisdom, strengthen him in body and mind, Fill him, Father, we ask, with your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, again for this evening. We thank you especially for redemption in Jesus Christ through the shedding of his blood and the removal of our sins. In his name we pray, amen. It is my pleasure then to introduce to you our brother Chuck Rennie. We are thankful for his service to his church, and his service to our association as well. He has served for 13 years as pastor at Sycamore Reformed Baptist Church in East Moline. And he has been married to his wife, Becca, for 19 years, and it's their anniversary tomorrow. So we need to send a note of apology to his wife. (laughs) They have two children, a boy and a girl. He has... Uh, Master of Divinity from Westminster Seminary in California and a certificate from IRBS there as well. And he is working on a PhD from Durham University in the UK. Brother, would you come and declare a word to us? It is my anniversary gift to my wife that I leave her alone for a few days. (laughs) Yeah, nice try. Well, I'm grateful to be here, uh, to have been asked to give the second message at this uh, General Assembly, which means that I've been asked to speak on the fifth paragraph, the fifth paragraph of the 26th chapter in our Confession of Faith. Now, it'd be good if you were able to follow along. Um, If you don't have it otherwise in front of you, it's in the back of the Trinity Hymnal on page 484. But it would be good if you could uh, follow along with me. And just as an aside, as you uh, turn there to the fifth paragraph, chapter 26, uh, just as an aside, I have been uh, told that I have 50 to 60 minutes. And so I'm going to shoot for the lesser of the two and then just either apologize later or you can take it up with Pastor Gerizzo. And so proceeding from what we heard yesterday evening from paragraph 4, we read in paragraph 5, 
in the execution of this power wherewith he is so entrusted, the Lord Jesus calleth out of the world unto himself through the ministry of his word, by his spirit, those that are given unto him by his Father, that they may walk before him in all the ways of obedience which he prescribeth to them in his word. Those thus called, he commandeth to walk together in particular societies or churches for their mutual edification and the due performance of that public worship which he requireth of them in the world. Now, before we narrow our focus this evening, it would be worth taking the time to set this paragraph within its larger context. And it's always helpful to uh, remember that we are dealing here with a chapter on ecclesiology of the church. Now, that's that's an obvious point. But it reminds us that whatsoever is dealt with here is only dealt with insofar as it relates to the church. And so the paragraph Uh, in front of us here, speaks of Christ calling his elect to himself. And while the confession deals with effectual calling itself in chapter 10, the primary purpose here is to develop some of those soteriological considerations and conclusions in relation to our ecclesiology. The Lord Jesus calls individual persons, but he simultaneously calls them into a redeemed society to be one body, which is the church. Now, as to the placement of paragraph 5 within this chapter, what we observed yesterday from paragraph 4, that paragraph 4 establishes the supreme and magisterial authority of the Lord Jesus Christ over the church. There in paragraph 4, we're told that the Father has entrusted to Jesus all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church. And you've probably already noticed that the rest of this chapter, our paragraph included, it follows this basic outline. So you have the calling, paragraph 5, institution, paragraph 6, order, paragraph 7, and the government of the church, paragraph 8, all the way through the end of the chapter. Now, accordingly, paragraph 5 deals with the subject of Christ's calling the church. Christ's calling the church into being and therefore is especially concerned with the being of the church. In other words, we we have here in paragraph 5 an ontology of the church, which simply means the study of, of being, the being of the church. It's concerned with the the origin or the purpose or the origin and the purpose of the church. It is... It is precisely here that our ecclesiology must be viewed in relation not only to Christology, but to theology and a Trinitarian reduction at that. You notice here 
how the Lord Jesus is said to, you notice the, the Trinitarian language, how the Lord Jesus is said to execute the Father's plan by the Spirit. Now, as to the structure of the paragraph itself, perhaps you've already noticed that it can be broken down into two sentences that fairly neatly divide the thought of the paragraph into two parts. And so the first sentence, it especially highlights the divine acts whereby a church is called into being. So the Lord Jesus calleth out of the world unto himself. And then the second sentence especially highlights the nature and the purpose of the church thus called. Those thus called he commandeth to walk together for mutual edification and, and so forth. In other words, the two parts of this paragraph, these two sentences, or expressed in these two sentences, express that by which the church exists and that for which the church exists, that by which it is called and that for which it is called. Now, I'd suggest uh, for us this evening that 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 18, which we just had read to us, uh, be a scriptural point of, of reference for us, a point of reference upon which to base our consideration of these two things, that by which and that for which the church of Jesus Christ exists. And so 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 18. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. <clears throat> I want you to notice this evening as we take these uh, two things in, in two parts, we see here the divine, both in our passage in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18, but also in our paragraph, in our confession, we have the divine mission of reconciliation. The divine mission of reconciliation, that by which the church exists. And then secondly, the church's ministry of reconciliation, that for which the church exists. And so these two things, first, the divine mission of reconciliation, that by which the church exists. Now, as Paul progresses from theology to ecclesiology, he supplies us with the surest point of departure. He says, now all things are of God. Ectu theu, all things are of God. And if all things, then so also the church. If, if the object of theology is God and all things in relation to God, then we cannot rightly understand our ecclesiology except in relation to theology. All 
things are of God. Whatsoever is that is not God is of God and therefore has its origin and its being from God and therefore has its being in relation to God. And therefore, the principle of a sound ecclesiology is not rooted foremost in ecclesiology, but in theology. And here, most especially, God's aseity. Now, aseity is a word that's derived from the Latin ase, which signifies God's absolute possession of his own being, so that all that he is... He is of and from himself. He is not of another, nor does he have being from another. Though, of course, all else has its origin, its purpose, its, its creation and continuation and operation of and from him. This is the... Um, basic, uh, fundamental, creator-creature distinction that has to be extended to the church no less than to any other creature or any other created thing. Which is to suggest at the outset that it is not we, but God who grants the creation and the continuation and the operation of the church. Paul says it is of God. And therefore, we cannot simply think of the local church as so many evangelicals like to do, thinking of it like any other human institution, self-assembled, and therefore self-governed. Because to do so would grant to ecclesiology an unholy independence from theology, and it would grant to the church's ministry of reconciliation an unholy independence from God's mission of reconciliation. Rather, the church has its being and its life ad extra. In other words, it is outside of itself. It is of God, who has, as Paul says, of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And again, of God, who is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It is as Bart has wonderfully said, the church has its origin in the origin of origins, by which he means the trinity of persons. And that is to say, in the outward missions of the Son and the Spirit, the Father's plan of reconciliation has been accomplished and applied such that the church, the church comes into being, into being by, by virtue of a holy convocation, a holy calling, which is from the Father, through the Son, 
and by the Spirit. Notice the Trinitarian language in our confession. In our paragraph in the confession. The Lord Jesus, we're told, calleth out of the world unto himself. So the Lord Jesus calls who? Well, we're told he calls those that are given unto him by his Father. And again, in the execution of that power wherewith he was he has been entrusted by the Father. And this he does, we confess here, through the ministry of his word by his spirit. So you see, the plan initiated by the Father is here said to be accomplished in the mission or the missions of the Son and of the Spirit. The result, then, the result of those missions being a redeemed community, manifest in local societies, instituted by Christ, and constituted by the Spirit. Now, when we speak of divine missions, this is older language, requires some explanation When we speak of the divine missions, we're speaking of the external works of God, ad extra, the external works of God. But we are doing so, by speaking of divine missions, we are doing so in such a way that the works of God, ad extra, the external works of God, are more clearly seen in relation to the work of God, ad intra, the internal work of God. For the outer work, or for God's outer work, rests upon his inner perfection. Now, we'll explain this a bit. Each divine person acts in time after the manner in which each divine person proceeds in eternity. Let me say that again. Each divine person acts in time, the external works of God, after the manner in which each divine person proceeds in eternity. And so by speaking of the divine missions, rather than more, uh, let's say more generically, of the divine operations, by speaking of the divine missions, we are able to see more clearly that the persons of the Trinity work in creation and they work in redemption in a manner that is consistent with their eternal relations and personal properties. The Son works in a manner that is consistent with the Son, as Son, the Spirit as Spirit, and so forth. Aquinas, he tells us that the concept of mission in theological terms applied to God. The concept of mission, he says, includes the eternal procession with the addition of a temporal effect, an effect in time. In other words, the concept of mission implies, right, it's a mission, it implies a going forth. 
it, it implies an, an outward procession wherein the Son and the Spirit proceed in time after the same manner in which they proceed in eternity. But in the case of the divine missions in time, the external works of God, the Son and the Spirit proceed in such a way that, that brings about a new relation, not in God, but in the creature. In other words, as Aquinas says, a temporal effect, an effect in time. Now, consider the example of the sun. Consider the example of the sun. He is called sun because he eternally proceeds from the father after the manner of a son, as begotten, conceived, going forth in a filial way. And as such... The Son's eternal procession from the Father, it terminates ad intra, in God, in a subsisting filial relation as the person of the Son, God of God, very God of very God. And so it is in the outward mission or procession of the Son. He proceeds in a way that is characteristic of who he is, sent by the Father in a filial way. But not in such a way that brings about any new relation in God, but a new relation in the creature. So that the mission of the Son, proceeding as a Son, it terminates. It has an effect ad extra, outside of God, in a new Son-like relationship in the creature. We'll work this out a little bit. And one of the, the clearest uh, examples, the clearest terminating points, if you will, uh, end points of the Son's mission, his outward procession, is, of course, the incarnation, whereby God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The Father wasn't, was not incarnate, the Spirit was not incarnate, but the Son in particular was incarnate, as Paul says. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And in the incarnation, the Son, proceeding from the Father as the Son, brought forth a new filial relation, not in God, but in the creature such that the Father, in the scripture, declares of the incarnate Christ, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now this idea of sonship, it is an idea that signifies relationship. It signifies relation. And foremost, this idea of sonship expresses a relation of origin and a relation of authorship from the Father. And therefore, as son, he also expresses the image of the Father. Hebrews tells us, 
that the Son, as Son, is the brightness of his Father's glory and the express image of his person. And as this archetypal sonship is is given in the Son's mission, a creaturely mode in the incarnation, a creaturely mode of expression, it also entails a relation of order in the creature, of order and of authority, and and therefore finds greatest expression in Christ's imitation and his submission to the will of the Father. And so as the incarnate one, Jesus said, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. He is a perfect manifestation of the father-son relation in its creaturely and covenantal mode of expression. Old Testament scholars like to tell us that the language, the language which is expressive of the father-son relationship, was frequently used in the ancient treaties, the ancient covenants and the ancient treaty diplomacy to refer to the suzerain and the vassal relationship. So the greater nation would be referred to as a father and the vassal uh, relation uh, nation would be referred to as a son, covenantal terms. And, and here, in, in covenantal form, the incarnate son, as, as, our me, uh, as our missionary and our mediator, he renders obedience to the father, fulfilling the plan which the father initiated. And he does this not out of a servile fear, but from a filial love. Again, John 14 and verse 31. Jesus said, But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Through the incarnation, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself in a filial way. We see this in our confession, in the paragraph under consideration, in that it concerns the incarnate son's execution of the mission entrusted to him by the Father to to accomplish the reconciliation of those given to him by the Father. And this means, of course, that the incarnation was not the only end, not the only terminus or terminating point of the Son's mission, of his outward procession. We we read in uh, Galatians 4 that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, there's incarnational context, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law and unto what end? That we might receive the adoption as sons. In other words, 
to effect, to bring about the effect of a renewed and restored filial relation, not not just in the creature generally, but in those given to him by the Father specifically. And by this adoption, in and through the death and the resurrection of the Son, not only is a new relation with the Father established, but at one and the same time, a new familial relation is established with the members of Christ as well, with the body of Christ as well. Now, to put this plainly, which I know you were hoping that I did that a long time ago, you could say that not unlike the incarnation itself, not unlike the incarnation, the church is a end point. It is a terminating point and a temporal effect of the Son's mission. Because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself in a filial way. Persons are adopted. Churches are formed. A household of faith is made. Particular societies of those who have been reconciled to the Father through the Spirit or through the Son and by the Spirit. John Webster said it well when he said the Son's deity issues in an outward movement that is in the temporal mission of reconciliation. The second Adam fulfills the law by obeying the Father's will, taking upon himself the curse of Adam's race, and so restoring creaturely fellowship with God and bringing into existence a community which is indeed in Dei Societate, in other words, in the society of God. In the society of God. When John Webster says that that the church is a human society which is made to exist in the society of God, He is suggesting that it is no mere human society that is self-instituted and self-governed. The church does not possess its being of itself, but it is the terminating point or terminus of God's mission of reconciliation in the Son. It has its being by way of participation or by way of relation to the Son's mission of reconciliation, apart from which it ceases to be a true church. And that's why the marks of a true church single out those activities whereby it is made to participate in the divine missions. That is thereby instituted and constituted as a society that possesses its life through a gracious participation in the society of God. It is a society instituted 
by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, by virtue of which it is also called and constituted through the mission of the Spirit, working through the ministry of the Word. And so something has to be said about the mission of the Spirit. And all that pertains to the general concept of mission, it remains true, it remains the same here. Like the Son, the Spirit proceeds in time after the same manner in which he proceeds in eternity. And again, whereas his eternal procession is manifested in in a subsisting relation in God, the person of the Holy Spirit, his temporal procession or mission is such that it brings about a new and corresponding relation, not in God, but in the creature. Now, in classical Trinitarianism, it is confessed that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. From the Father and the Son. And he is called Spirit because he eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son in the same way or a similar way that, lo- that a, a lover loves the beloved. In other words, as the spiritual nexus, that which unites the, the spiritual uh, nexus expressive of a loving union between the Father and the Son. And as such, the Spirit's eternal procession from the Father and the Son, it terminates ad entra in God in a subsisting, unitive relation as the person of the Spirit. And so it is in the outward mission of the Spirit. He proceeds in a way that is characteristic of who he is, sent from the Father in a unitive way but not in such a way that brings about any new relation in God, but a new relation in the creature. So that the mission of the Spirit, proceeding as the nexus between the Father and the Son, it terminates ad extra in a new love relation, or we could say union, with the creature. Michael Horton writes, Through the Spirit, all that is done by Christ for us, outside of us, and in the past, is received and made fruitful within us in the present. And the Spirit does this, not only in uniting a sinner to Christ, and and therefore to the Father, but in uniting the many members of Christ in a communion of love for God and for one another. Again, Michael Horton speaks well when he says, the Spirit is sent not on a freelance mission, but on an embassy to bring about the end-time gathering, ecclesia, 
through the one revelation of God and Christ. And so as the union, as the nexus between the Father and the Son, the Spirit's mission is not only to unite sinners to Christ, but to unite them to a community of sinners united to Christ. Paul says, for by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. In fact, Bart may not have been wrong when he said that to sever these things, to sever these things, our, our being united with Christ on the one hand and our being united with the church, to, to separate and sever those things, he said, may be something akin to the sin against the Holy Ghost. For the Holy Ghost leads us directly into the community and not into a private relationship with Christ. That which the Father through the Son has instituted the Father and the Son through the Spirit constitutes. As the nexus between the Father and the Son, the Spirit is the nexus that gathers, assembles, unites, and constitutes a community that is reconciled to the Father through the Son. Okay, that brings us to our second point. The church's ministry of reconciliation. That for which it exists. And once again, our scriptural point of reference. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We noted at the beginning that our paragraph in the confession can be divided into these uh, two parts, somewhat neatly distinguished by, distinguished by the two sentences in which the paragraph is composed. And so the first sentence, it highlights the divine mission of reconciliation, whereby the church is called into being. The Lord Jesus calleth out of the world unto himself, so forth. The second sentence, to which our attention is now turned, especially highlights the nature and the purpose, the continuation and the operation of the church thus called. And so you notice the purpose clause at the end of the first sentence, that they may walk before him in all the ways of obedience which he prescribeth to them in his word, And then especially the second sentence, those thus called, he commandeth to walk together for the mutual edification, the due performance of that public worship, which he requireth of them in the world. In other words, the nature and the purpose for which the church exists, its ministry of reconciliation in the world, consists primarily of worship, and worship, as our confession says, that is according to the word of God. Now, the obvious implication here is the regulative principle of worship. 
which is to say that worship, that the worship of the church is not self-governed, but is governed by Christ through his word. But I would suggest that the implications here go well beyond the RPW. We must also inquire into the relation between the church's ministry of reconciliation and the son's mission of reconciliation. So-called incarnational ecclesiologies, which have become popular among evangelicals. These, these incarnational ecclesiologies tend to conflate, uh, just conflate and make no distinction between the mission of the Son and the mission of the church. But as such, the church, in these ecclesiologies, the church being viewed as an abiding incarnation of Christ in the world, is thought to continue Christ's mission in his absence so that the church becomes the, the acting subject through which reconciliation is brought to the ends of the world. Now, such an understanding uh, has tended to and does tend to, over time, to reduce God's work of reconciling the world to himself through Christ to the church's work of moral and social action in his name. The emphasis tends to fall upon the imitation of Christ rather than the worship of Christ. And the church's ministry of reconciliation, conceived in terms of what would Jesus do, becomes, in these ecclesiologies, becomes disconnected from what Jesus has done and what the Spirit is doing in their respective missions of reconciliation to the world. And so as Michael Horton says, the church would then be our work, inspired by Jesus, but our work nonetheless. But as Paul unequivocally states, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself. Through Jesus Christ. By virtue of what God has done through Christ, a new and communal relation with God has been established, a relation that gives the church its purpose and determines its activity. And it is this particular purpose which Paul s- signals in what he says next, that by virtue of the Son's mission, he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And so what is the relation? What is the relation between, between the church's ministry of reconciliation and the Son's mission of reconciliation? Well, first, consider what it is not. The church has neither been instituted nor constituted by a mission of social action, and therefore neither has it been instituted or constituted for a ministry of social action. It has been instituted by the reconciling mission of the Son through his death, 
resurrection, and ascension. And it has been constituted by the reconciling mission of the Spirit, working through the ministry of the Word, the Word of reconciliation. That Word, which bears witness to God's reconciling activity in Jesus Christ. The church, being brought forth by that word, reconciled through that word, gathered according to that word, exists in order to give a living witness through that same word to the reconciling mission of the Son. And as such, the church is itself a terminating point, a temporal effect, and, and really is that receptive object rather than active subject of the Son's mission of reconciliation. The church, no doubt, has been given an activity. It has been given a ministry to perform in the due exercise of the means of grace. But these means, the preached word, the ordinance, and prayer, these means are not of themselves, much less of us or of the church, but of grace means of grace, and therefore, of God. And so as Webster points out, to describe the human assembly as what it is, therefore, reference must be made to certain antecedent divine works. Behind every human activity in the life of the church, with respect to the due performance of of every means of grace, properly so-called, behind every human activity in the life of the church is a divine act of holy convocation and communication. When we confess that Jesus Christ calleth his church unto himself. We're not simply referring to the distant origins of the church, but also its, its continued activity, the continued activity that marks it as a true church thus called. In fact, when Jesus speaking of his, to his disciples of his resurrection and of his ascension, Jesus said, I am going away and coming back to you. I'm going away and coming back to you. And surely he is coming back on the last day. But that is not what he is referring to here. In the context, he was speaking about the spirit and the spirit whom he would send after his ascension. In other words, he would come back, as it were, through the mission of the spirit who unites us to the mission of Christ and mediates a continued presence and activity of Christ within the church. Again, Michael Horton notes that behind every human representation, such as the official ministry of the church, stands the spirit, the divine witness at work 
in every human witness. The Son goes through the cross to the resurrection and is exalted to the ascension, break, is exalted in the ascension, breaking open the treasure houses of heaven to be distributed by the Spirit to his co-heirs. And this happens, Webster says, this happens because at the Son's behest, in other words, Jesus Christ calleth, at the Son's behest, the Spirit of truth is active in the church's life to guide it into all truth. Brothers and sisters, the church is at its core passive. The church is at its core made receptive to grace by grace. It is a creation of the word, generated by the word, sustained by the word, directed and governed by the word, through which Christ's presence is made known through his spirit. The church is fundamentally a worshiping community whose life has as its core activity hearing, receiving, believing, confessing, and testifying to the divine word and work of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. A truly missional understanding of the church would be to confess that the church is the mission of the Son and the Spirit. It is as a community of redeemed whose ministry of reconciliation consists of bearing witness through the word to God's mission in his Son and his Spirit. Worship, so long as it is by and through the word, is missional. Again, Michael Horton says it very well here. He says, the word that is preached, taught, sung, and prayed, along with baptism and the Eucharist, not only prepares us for mission, It also is itself the missionary event as visitors are able to hear and see the gospel that it communicates and the communion that it generates. Paragraph 5 at least hints of a Trinitarian reduction of our ecclesiology and ontology of the church that both distinguishes and unites the divine mission of reconciliation and the church's ministry of reconciliation. The church is a human society made to exist in the society of God whose common life under the word is led and is directed from its origin through its Lord to its end. Whereby, as scripture says, the whole body is joined together and grows into a holy temple 
for a dwelling place of God and the Spirit. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, do pray that you would use this word and this instruction to help us, to encourage us, um, even if some of it goes by us or over us or in some other way, we miss it. We pray, Lord, that we would have enough to chew on, to digest, to feed our soul, and to be encouraged that our salvation, and not only in the private and personal sense, but our being united to Christ and therefore to the body of Christ, um, is all of grace. It is not at all of us, and even as we come into the life of the church and we participate in the life of the church, and as pastors and preachers, we lead perhaps in the life of the church and administer the means of grace, help us to remember that these are means of grace, not of us, not of the church, not of our own devising. We do not grant to it either its existence in the life of the church, much less its efficacy in the life of the church. But that is owed entirely to the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ by his spirit working through those means. And our Father, we pray that we would be faithful to the means that our Lord has appointed, that you would be faithful indeed to, uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is earned, who is purchased, who is merited for himself, a people that you have given to him. And so we ask, Lord, that you would use us, use uh, our respective pulpits and our churches uh, in your mission uh, to bring about the effect of salvation in the lives of your elect. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.